Well, good morning. This is your chance to respond. Howdy! Welcome back. If you've been away, my name is Kevin Barra. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace and uh, actually see, oversee the youth ministry. I'm usually over at the Anderson campus, yes, and, uh, but glad to be over here with you this morning. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12, so you can be flipping there as we, we jump in. Uh, this is the season of starting over. Whether you realize it or not, it is 2016, people. Can you believe it? I remember uh, I, I see youth or younger kids in the room. Whenever I started a new semester and I would have to write the new date on the paper, I would always make mistakes. 2016, not 2015. We've arrived. It's a new year. It's very much a season of starting over. And my wife and I have hit a new season of starting over ourselves. Uh, we added a fourth child to the mix. Um, here's, here's the babies. Um, so the, the baby is, uh, we've uh, lovingly called Quattro because we went surprise on number four, and so we didn't know, so it was just Quattro until it arrived, and then it became Quattra. Um, actually, her name is Juliet, so the baby is Juliet, and then Peyton is her sister right next to her. She's five and a half. Uh, Micah, over all the way to your left, is uh, four, and then Jesse, all the way to the right, is two and a half. That's right. Those numbers are correct. It is crazy. So we started over, right? Started over with a baby. And so we're swaddling and not sleeping and shaking the baby, not like shake, but shaking the baby, jiggling that baby to sleep and just kind of hit a whole new world of starting over for us over this season. She's just seven weeks old. And so for you, this is a season of restarts, of starting over for a new year. And so some of you are going to start that new diet, right? Or restart the exercise program. Or recommit to some objectives at work. Or recommit to some fil- fulfilling some obligations with your family or with friends. This is a season for starting over. And for me, I usually take this time of year to, to think about the past year and then consider what I want this next year to be like. What, what I want to start doing or restart in my own life. And so over the holidays, I'm spending time with my, uh, my in-laws in Katy. Both my family and my wife's family live in Katy. And so we're there my, at my, uh, my wife's parents' place. And they have a beautiful home with a beautiful pool in the backyard, kind of oversees a lake. And so right around, you know, Christmas holidays, it was like 82 degrees here kind of in South Texas outside of Houston. And so I'm there like in shorts. My kids are playing in the pool. And I'm just kind of laying out thinking about, what do I want this next year to be like? I don't know, like this. You know, I'm just kind of thinking about... What do I want to achieve the new year? And so I started evaluating my goals and thinking about what do I want my life to look like this next year? And I'm a reader and a podcaster, and so I start listening and reading different people and what they say. And all of them centered around these four pieces. They say, when you want to achieve goals this next year, these are the four things you need to do to write them down, to review them daily, to mark your progress, and make course corrections along the way. And every person is basically saying the same thing, whether it's John Acuff or Forbes magazine or Twitter or Michael Hyatt. All of them are saying, you want to achieve goals this next year. These are your four steps. But they weren't answering the deeper question that I had. I wasn't asking the question, how do I generally achieve goals in life? I was asking a more fundamental question. Where's my life going? And how do all these little goals help me to achieve the big goal that I'm chasing in life? I mean, honestly, I really wanted to get back to to the basics. At the beginning of every football season, the famous football coach, Vince Lombardi, would start the season the same way. 
And in 1961 of, of August, the, the, the Packers had just lost the NFL championship the previous year to the Philadelphia Eagles. And they had been thinking about the loss all summer. And the coach walks into that group of players that are kind of dejected, thinking about the next season, and he picks up a football. And he walks to the front of the room and says, Gentlemen, this is a football. Now, reportedly, one of the wide receivers said, Slow down, coach. (laughs) But he wanted to orient his men around the basics. To understand, what are we trying to do? And let's get on the same page on that. This is a football. We're trying to get this ball into the other end zone and stop that team from getting the ball into our end zone. That's what we're trying to do here. Are we clear on that? And as we start over a new year, I really just want to get us back to the basics. What does it look like to walk with God in 2016? What does it look like? And really, there's only three pieces I want to give you from Genesis 12. And that's this, to start listening, to start following, and thirdly, to be ready for a restart. Start listening, start following, and be ready for a restart. Join with me in reading Genesis chapter 12. God is speaking to Abram in this moment. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it opens this way. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had acquired, or gathered, and all the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. Now, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So the first thing we need to do in starting over this year is, first of all, this, to start listening. And what we have at the beginning of this section is an amazing call of God on a man's life. And this is one of the most significant moments in history where God speaks audibly to a man and says, go to where I'm leading. I mean, it's significant. Three major world religions all trace their roots to this man in this moment. Jews, Muslims, and Christians all trace their lineage to this man in this calling with God. Everyone knows Abram. He's one of the most famous people in history. And he had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. And I'm one of them. So are you. So let's just, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know this guy, right? He's one of the most famous men in history. And in this moment, God calls him on an entirely new mission. He is listening to God. Now, as soon as I say that, I think there's several objections that come up when we talk about listening to God. And the first objection, I think, is this, that I can't hear God. I mean, if I heard God in this way, I I would completely follow him. I mean, if, if God one day came to me and said, Kevin, go to Starbucks, I'd be like, yes, Lord, you know, you've called me there. Or Kevin, go to a lush 
area in the South Pacific, we'll call it Hawaii, and enjoy your time there. I say, Lord, if you're calling me there, I will go, right? And you would say to me, Kevin, I haven't heard that voice. I haven't heard that call. God hasn't spoken to me audibly in that way. And I'll grant you that. See, Abram was a man who was called, he was a very specific person, called to a very specific mission. And the truth is this, God doesn't always speak to people audibly in this way. But it doesn't mean that God isn't still speaking. See, God still speaks through his world and through his word. God speaks through, through his world. Psalm 19 says it this way, The heavens are declaring the glory of God, and the skies are declaring the works of his hands. The psalmist is saying, if you look in creation, you should be able to see that there is a designer behind the design. There is a creator behind the creation. Paul says it the same way in Romans chapter 1. He says, if you look at creative order, you should see that there is a, there is a God who made all of this. And it's not just people in the Bible. Francis Collins, one of the preeminent um, scientists of our day, he developed the Human Genome Project, studying human DNA structure. He says this, when I study the intricacies of DNA, I see the glory of God. You see, you can look at creation and see there is, there is a designer behind this. You look at the world and you can see that this is the work of God's hands. But not just in the world, through his word. Hebrews says of Jesus that he is the image of God, the exact representation of his glory. You want to know what God would say, all you need to do is look at the sun. John calls Jesus literally the word of God, the word become flesh, the flesh incarnate, the word incarnate. If you want to know the types of things God would say, all you have to do is look at the sun, but not only the sun, also his word in scripture. Hebrews says of the Bible, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. If you want to know what God is saying to you, all you need to do is spend time in this book. You see, the truth is this. God is still speaking. The problem is for many of us, we don't want to hear what he's saying. There's a philosopher named Thomas Nagel. He's an atheist, and he works, currently works at... Um, New York University, and he's taught there since 1980. And he says this, In speaking of the fear of religion, I do not mean to refer to the entirely reasonable hostility toward certain established religions and religious institutions in virtue of their objectionable moral doctrines, social policies, political influence. Nor am I referring to the association of many religious beliefs with superstition and the acceptance of empirical falsehoods, of evident empirical falsehoods. I'm speaking about something much deeper, namely the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent, well-informed people I know are religious believers. I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent, well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in this belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. So I think for some of us, the reason we can't hear is because we don't want to hear what he's saying. 
The second excuse would, would be this, that I think some of us would say it's too late. And what we mean by that is this, I'm too far gone or I'm too old. I'm too far gone and I'm too old. And I think the reason we say that is because there's a misconception that some of us have about religion. Religion is about good people doing good things, but that's actually not the case. Do you know where Abram was when he was called by God? Joshua says it this way. In Joshua 24, verse 2 through 3, it says this, Joshua said to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your father lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abram, the father of Nahor. And listen to this. And they served other gods. Then I took your father Abram from beyond the river and led him through the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. Where was Abram when he was called? He was serving other gods in in Ur of the Chaldeans. And if you were to do a little bit of research about that area and what religion looked like, you would actually be shocked and offended. The religion was sexually perverse and violent. See, Abram wasn't a good guy doing good things that God called to do his purposes. Abram was an evil guy living the same way his entire culture was who God said, not anymore, let's go. You see, it's never too late. And secondly, you're never too old. You're never too old. You're never too far gone, and you're never too old. Read verse 4 of Genesis 12. How old is Abram in this moment? 75. Abe is not a spring chicken, right? He's lived life, right? He's had a career. He's had a direction of life. And it's to this guy at 75 that God's saying, nobody, we're going in an entirely new direction. See, it's never too late for anyone. You're never too far gone. You're never too old to start over with God. And the third excuse I think some of us would bring is this. It's too hard. I mean, wasn't it easier back then to kind of like jump up and just follow God wherever he was leading, wherever he was calling? Wasn't it easier back then? Weren't they kind of like a nomadic people that just did this? Well, actually, no. Ur of the Chaldeans, it was in an area called Babylon. Babylon. It was one of the major metropolitan cities of the day. Over 24,000 people lived there. And look at what God calls him to in leaving. He says, leave your country, your kindred, and your father's house. Leave your country. Leave the place that you're familiar. Leave those 24,000 people and all the sweet things in that city. Leave that Leave your kindred. Leave what's safe. See, in that day and age, in that day and age, in that culture, you would surround yourself with your family, your uncles and aunts and cousins, and everyone would kind of look after each other and care for one another. It's very much a clan mentality. And God's saying, "Look, you leave the safety of your kindred, and third, you leave your father's house. Leave those you love most." See, the truth is this. That following God, listening to where God is calling you, is always hard. It is. But there's something that we might be missing in this moment. There's five I wills that God says to Abram. He says, two verses, five I wills. I will go to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great name. I will bless you. I will protect you. And every turn that Abram has, he says, look, I will be with you as you go. As he's trusting God is this. It's primarily, 
about trusting God in what he is saying and what he will do. The first step this, to starting over is this, to start listening. But secondly, is to start following. Start following. Jump to chapter 12, verse, five, verse 4. It says this, So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. See, the first thing we need to do in following God is to first follow through. And it seems that Abram is following through in this call. It seems that he got up and left. But if you were to read Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives us some insight into into when he was called and what this process looked like. Stephen says it this way, that Abram began in Ur of the Chaldeans. It's in the Babylonian region here, kind of all the way to the south where that big square is, right? And then Abram went north to Haran, to that region, and he stopped there. Now, why didn't he just, the area he's trying to get to is where this purple arrow is all the way to the left. That's where he's trying to get, the purple arrow. But he went north first. Why did he go north? Well, in between that area is a huge, great, barren desert. He couldn't just go across it. So you followed the waterway north before you went south. But why did he stop in Haran? Well, in Haran, in that day and age, it was a center of moon worship. It would have been a cultural it would, be, it would be very culturally similar to where, where Abraham had just left. It was familiar to him. And the text says in Genesis 11 that he waited there until his father, Terah, died before he started moving again. See, he started by not following through. He only went halfway. In that moment, God says, no, no, get up. We got further to go. And so he went up and went all the way in to the land. And the second thing God is calling us to do is to follow through not merely in going where he's calling us, but to follow through in the culture that he puts us. In verse 5, it says this, Now Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and all the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they passed through the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land at the place of Shechem to the Oak of Morah. And at that time, Canaanites were in the land. That's a key phrase. Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give you this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on still toward the Negev. Once Abram starts moving, he moves into a region that's actually very interesting. See, if you were called by God, I think many of us would think this. If God's going to lead me somewhere, surely he's going to like smooth the paths to where I'm headed. Make it easier. I mean, if, he, if I'm, he's going to make me a great nation and like give me descendants, surely he's going to give me a place to live, like land to kind of settle on. But God doesn't. He sticks Abram right in the middle of enemy-occupied territory. If you know anything about the history of the nation of Israel, the Canaanites are their historic enemy. They always butt heads through their entire time there in the Bible. And God sticks Abram in the midst of a culture of conflicting values. And you know what? God does that today. He calls you to follow him. And he calls you to follow him in the midst of a culture of conflicting values. This, uh, over this break, um, my sister came in from out of town. She lives in California. She's an engineer and works at an engineering firm up in northern Cal. And she's telling me about um, a party that two of her managers were throwing kind of for the company. 
And two of the managers went in Habsies to pay for this party. And there was a Jewish guy and a Christian guy that were both kind of financing this party and planning it. And the Jewish guy just paid money, and the Christian guy took the money, put in some of his own money, and planned the party. And they didn't know what type of party it was until the invitations came out. And they got the invitations, and it's apparently a Christmas party, and they're going to have honey-baked ham at the Christmas party. And my sister went to the Jewish manager and was like, hey, did you know it's going to be a Christmas party? He's like, no, this is really awkward. Um, he's like, I don't even know if I'm going to go anymore. My sister's like, oh, come on, you, you just got to come. He's like, I'm not even going to eat anything there. Why would I even want to go? And see, that's true. In our culture, we are more and more coming head to head with conflicting cultural values. We are. And not just in crazy places like Northern Cal. I was talking to a friend of mine in Castlegate, living in Castlegate, you know, like right over there, not very far. And he's telling me about his neighbors. He's got Muslim neighbors, he's got some Chinese neighbors, all of these people with different views on what life is all about, on religion, on everything. He stuck them right in the midst of conflicting cultures. See, for some of you, God is going to call you to go to crazy other side of the world places to represent him in that place. For some of you, He's going to call you to go to your crazy neighbor to represent him in front of them. Well, how do I do that? Well, Peter gives us some wisdom in this. In 1 Peter, he says this, But in your heart, honor Christ as Lord, as holy. Always be prepared to make a a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. What does that mean? It says, have you set apart as Christ is Lord in your heart? Are you one who is unapologetically Christian? I'm a follower of Jesus no matter where I land. Well, then as you engage culture, you do it gently and respectfully. That means you throw a Christmas party, but you fit the bill and you invite your non-believing friends, right? That means you throw block parties. You engage with your non-Christian neighbors. You are unapologetically Christian in the world. And you say, you know what? And join in, even if you're on the outside of what I believe, so that you might meet the Jesus I know. See, following God simply means this. To follow him in the place that he puts you, in the culture that he puts you. And that's the first challenge. It's a cultural challenge. But the second challenge that God leads Abram into is much harder. It's a trust challenge. And the truth is this, as you follow God, he'll lead you into difficulty. And in verse 10, it shows the difficulty, the next difficulty that he went into. In verse 10, it says this, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now, as you, as you read that, You may go, what's the big deal with the famine? Well, in that culture, in that day and age, if it didn't rain, you didn't eat. So if you went home after today and all of your pantries were empty and all of your bank accounts were depleted, you would be a little terrified. And that's Abram's moment, right? No pantry, no life savings, everything's gone. He's going, what am I going to do? And it says that he went down to Egypt Now, every time you read that in the scripture, it typically means this, that people are going from the call of God to the ease of the world. Egypt was a cultural center that was wealthy, that was vibrant. In Isaiah, it says of Egypt to Israel, you trusted in the horses of Egypt. 
It means you're going from the place of trusting God to the ease of the world. You see, the truth is this. As you start walking with God, every start will require a restart because everyone is going to make mistakes along the way. And so Abraham goes from where he should be in the Negev over down to Egypt to sojourn there. And that's not even the biggest mistake Abram makes. See, during this time, I was thinking about, okay, I read a mistake that he made with his wife, and I thought to myself, okay, what are some insensitive, dumb things that I have said to my wife personally, right? So during our time in life, my kind of time, these are the dumb things, insensitive things that I've said to my wife. Here's one. It's your turn to change the diaper, like we're keeping count, right? Or this is horrible, here, you taste, right? Or can you see why the kids are screaming, I'm trying to sleep? Or, number four, take out the trash. It's disgusting. There's no way I'm touching it. Now, that one my wife said to me, okay? Like, <laughs> and so those are some just generally insensitive things that I've said to my spouse. But then I read what Abraham did. Jump down to verse 11. It says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Okay, he starts pretty, pretty well. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me because they will, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. What is he saying? Let's bring this up to 2016. He looks at his wife. They're heading down to Egypt. He says, baby, you're hot. Like, too hot. Like, I should have married the neighbor girl down the street, not someone so hot. Like, way too hot. I mean, people would kill for a girl who looks this good. Literally. They'll kill me if they see you. So here's my plan, baby. Just hear me out. Just hear me out. We're going to go down there. Pharaoh's going to see you're beautiful. He's going to take you into his harem to be one of his wives. You just go with it, and I'm going to get, you know, wealth and prosperity when we go there. Can you imagine what Sarah is thinking in this moment? I mean, just put yourself in her perspective. Don't record it, but put yourself in her perspective. She's probably thinking, okay, where's... Where's the bold man that's following the call of God, right? Where's the bold man that took our family all the way from Ur, all the way to Haran, all the way to where, we're, you know, where God wanted us to dwell? Where's that guy? Where's my knight in shining armor? Oh, yeah, he's over on the side in the fetal position sucking his thumb. Like, that's where my knight in shining armor is right now. He's like, baby, let's just see how it goes. They get down there. Verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt... And the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he was dealt well. they dealt well with Abram. Because he didn't want to kill the brother of the bride. You know, it would have been awkward. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Camels, Abe. He got what he wanted. He got what he most wanted. All it cost him was the plan of God and his wife. Have you ever been in a moment where you got everything you had ever wanted? It just costs you more than you ever think. Have you chased and gotten everything but missed the one thing that mattered most? I remember when I was in college, I ran track in college. And 
uh, we were training for the NCAA championships. The, the pinnacle of track is to run and compete at the NCAA championships. And we're getting everything together to train there. And I had sold out everything to compete at this level. And they flew us out to Palo Alto, California, to Stanford University. I get into the race just barely. I'm there on the line. The gun blows. The race starts. And I run. And I get to the finish line. And I cross the line. And there's a grate, um, like kind of a water grate, just off to the side of the track. And I'm over there puking. like, And I looked at the time. 845-00 in the steeplechase, the time I needed to run to qualify for the NCAA championship. So I'm smiling and puking, and eh, uh, you know, that's how that goes. And later on that summer, we went to LSU, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and it's 98 degrees in the shade, and I'm getting ready for the race, and I realize that I feel completely empty. And I run the race, I don't qualify for the finals, And later on that summer, I went to Colorado to spend time with some of my cousins in Pagosa Springs, Colorado. And I'm talking to my cousin, Brock, and he leads me out on where to go on a particular run. He says, hey, when you go out on this road, just stay on the main road. Don't go to the right. Don't go to the left. Just stay on the main road. And I start running. And I start praying. I said, God, why have I gotten everything I wanted, yet I just feel empty? And in God's sweet, convicting voice, he brought to my memory a, a verse from Joshua. Just stay on the main road. Just follow me. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Just follow me. And at that moment, I just felt God saying to me, you've been running everywhere. Literally, you're a distance runner. You've kind of running everywhere. Except to me. And at that moment, I said, all right, God. I'm in. Get me back on track with you. Because I'm chasing everything and finding it to be completely empty. You've got to think at this moment, God, Abram's going, what did I do? I sold out everything, and it cost me the will of God and my wife. And it's at that moment that God sweeps in. Verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh... And his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? You see what's happening here? Abram's getting called out by the pagan king for not acting like a Christian, right? Now then, here's your wife. Take her. Go. Get out of here, Abe. This is where you're supposed to be. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. He says, get back on track. You see, and I love that. God didn't punt on Abe. He said, come in, come back to my purposes. And if you miss the mistakes of these characters in the Bible, then you miss the gritty realism of the Bible. You see, God doesn't call perfect people to fulfill his purposes. He calls anyone and everyone to join him on his mission. He doesn't call perfect people that have it all put together, good people doing the right things. He'll call anyone and everyone. And when they blow it, he says, now, come back to me. Let's get back on. Let's restart with where I'm going. One of my favorite New Testament characters is Peter. And Peter is one of those guys with a lot of passion, not a lot of direction, right? 
And early on in Peter's life with, with Jesus, they're walking along, and P- Jesus asks a question, who do the people say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus goes, Simon, Barjona, blessed are you, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. God himself revealed this to you. Peter's like, do you hear that, boys? Boom, Peter, you know? And it goes on a little bit further in Jesus' life, and, and Jesus, Jesus says to Peter, hey, um, I'm just telling all of you guys, I'm going to go to the cross, and all of you are going to abandon me. And Peter like grabs Jesus by the side and says, hey, listen, 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 not on my watch. Peter, rock, all these fools may deny you, but not me, right? Jesus goes, no, you too. Later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, soldiers come to take Jesus away. And Peter, in that moment, a lot of action guy, grabs a sword and goes to kill the soldier, right? And misses and just gets a lobe of the ear, right? He's just, I'm going to kill you, lobe, right? So just not a, didn't have it together, right? And and Jesus goes, what are you doing, Peter? This isn't, no, I told you this was going to happen. Just wait. And they take Jesus away. And they start to beat him. And Peter kind of nuzzles up in a, a crowd that's around a charcoal fire. And it says that as he's sitting there warming his hands, a little girl starts talking to him. He says, hey, aren't you one of the disciples? He says, no, I'm not. Shut up, little girl, right? And another guy chimes in, no, no, l- listen to your accent. You're, you're one of his men. He's like, no, I'm, I'm not. And then a soldier pipes in. He's like, no, no, you, you're one of his men. And he says that he starts cussing to prove that he's not part of the team. He starts dropping F-bombs to show, I'm not part of Jesus' crew. In that moment, it says that, G- that Peter looked over and saw Jesus on the side that caught his eye. It says that he wept and he ran. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And he appeared to Peter in the twelve. He says, Peter, look at me. I'm alive. I'm coming back. I've still got great purposes. We've still got a great mission. Thomas, feel my hands. I'm alive. Go wait for me in Galilee and I'll come and give you the next play there. And they get up to Galilee. And they're sitting there by by the sea. And Peter says, boys, I'm going fishing. Now, this wasn't Peter's way of like killing time. Like, hey, I don't know. You want to go fishing? I don't know. You know it's not that moment. See, Peter was a fisher man. Now he says, I've done this Jesus thing. I'm going back to what I know. And it says they're out on the boat and they're out there all night and they catch nothing. And all of a sudden they hear a voice from, from the side, completely derogatory. He goes, little boys. Now, if you're a man, and someone from the side of the water is going, little boys, you're like, who is this chump, right? He goes, haven't caught anything, have you? No. Throw the net on the other side. And they throw the net on the other side, and they bring in a great quantity of fish. And John's standing right by Peter. He goes, Peter, this is your miracle. Jesus is recreating the moment he called you. It's Jesus on the shore. And it says that Peter stripped and dove in and started swimming. And then John says, but the rest of us just rode because we weren't that far from land, you know. (laughs) But Peter's passionate. He's there. And he gets there and he sees Jesus. And there's a charcoal fire sitting there with fish filleted open. The disciples all gather around. And Jesus takes a look at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter's like, yeah, you, you know all things, Jesus. You know I love you. Jesus says, so, so feed my sheep. Then the second time, Jesus goes, okay, Peter, Peter, listen up. Do you love me? Peter's like, okay, yeah, you, you know I love you, Jesus. You, you, I'm in. I, you know I love you. 
then tend my lambs. Then the third time, Jesus says, Peter, hey, just so we're clear, do you love me? And at this point, Peter gets kind of agitated. Like when your kid asks you 30 times the same question, you're like, shut up, yes. Jesus, you know all things. You know that I love you. Then tend my lambs. And then Jesus goes on to say, Peter, when you were younger, you used to get up and go wherever you wanted to go. But when you're older, someone's going to take you by the hand and lead you where you do not want to go. John says that Jesus said this to prepare Peter for the type of death he would endure. What's Jesus saying? He says, Peter, following me is going to be tough. Sometimes I'm going to bless your life, but sometimes someone's going to grab you by the hand and take you where you don't want to go. But I want you to follow me. It says that Peter looked over and saw John sitting on the side and says, hey, what about that guy? And Jesus goes, forget about him. Let's start over with you following me. Where are you this morning? Where do you need to start over with Jesus? I want to give us a couple applications and a closing illustration. First one I would give you this is, are you ready to start over? Some of you are saying right now, Kevin, if you knew what I did this past year, you knew the way that I blew it, you would know that I'm doing the best I can just to show up in this room. I cannot start over with God. You're never too far gone. You can start over. So are you ready to start listening to God? We've done everything we can here at Grace to try to provide opportunities for you to get around fellow believers around the Scripture, through home groups and small groups. But also, are you personally going to carve out time this next year to get in the Word of God alone, to spend time listening to Him? Are you ready to start following God? Is there an area of your life where God's putting His finger and saying, you know what, here is where you're not following me. Are you ready to commit that area to me and follow me this next year? And do you know, fourthly, that every start requires a restart? So you're going to hit March, and every commitment you've made, we will make a mistake on. But every start requires a restart. You're never too far gone, and God always just calls you back. Just come back. Let's start over with you following me. It can be hard to start over. I just want to give you one last closing illustration before you go out of here. And for me, um, this, over this season, this holiday season, my wife and I have gotten addicted to a TV show, uh, Fixer Upper. Right? Familiar? Okay. We're all in one together. I feel good about that. Uh, and since you already know, the main characters are uh, Chip and uh, Joanna Gaines. And they have a show that's based in Waco where they take these dilapidated, unloved homes and make them into something beautiful, Right? I remember one episode I'm watching in particular. They're building a home for a friend of theirs, and, and they walk in, and they end up getting the, the home for $10,000, basically the price of the land, because they figure this house is in such poor condition, they're going to have to bulldoze it and start from scratch. And so they get in there, and it smells horrible. There's rats everywhere. Their friends are like, why did you lead us to this dungeon? Like, I, why are we here? And they say, just trust us. We're going to do this here, that there. We'll clean it up. It'll be beautiful. Just stick with us. And they're like, all right. I mean, go for it. And I think as everyone does, my wife and I start talking to each other like, hey, would we want to do that? 
Like, would we want to buy just like some dilapidated house and just kind of start over and rebuild it and just make it beautiful? We look at each other and we're like, no. <laughs> because that is well beyond our ability, right? But when you saw Chip and Joanna get their hands on this, they created something beautiful. When you see the final product, you're just amazed that these two people could make something so beautiful out of something so broken. And as I thought about that, I said, that is exactly what it's like to walk with God. See, I think for many of us, we think, I can't start over because I can't fix me. And you're absolutely right. You can't. He can. You entrust yourself to the hands of the master and let him rework you. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you for people in the Bible that were not perfect, but by God's grace they are being perfected. That you never give up on people you call to yourself. You just call anyone and everyone to you. And Lord, I pray that as we think about where we might start over this next year, you would bring sweet conviction and that we would simply open our hands and say, Lord, lead me. Let me start over with me following you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.